Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. You've got Kirk today. Uh, John is uh, at the Milwaukee office right now preparing for a very big trial that we both have kicking off on Monday. So I am here flying solo. Hope that's okay with y'all. Uh, so we've got uh, lots more developments going on in the war in Europe. And I know that if we were broadcasting from Russia right now, I could get in trouble for calling it a war. And that's one thing that uh, we've seen an escalation of both in terms of the uh, bombardment of various cities, the killing of civilians, the targeting of a hospital, as well as the civilian neighborhoods by Russian forces, but also some intense propaganda and a crackdown on uh, facts reaching the citizens of Russia. And uh, as recently as yesterday, there had been uh, false information spread throughout the media in both Russia and China that the United States has equipped Ukraine with biological weapons, something that is absolutely not true and probably not even possible. But as we've seen with so many steps towards escalation of this process, we see Vladimir Putin saying one thing that, for example, no intention of invading Ukraine, but then an excuse comes up, often termed a false flag, where, well, now things are different because there's been atrocities committed against um, pro-Russian uh, or independent thinking people in the eastern portions of Ukraine, and therefore that justifies a quote-unquote special military action. Uh, just like Putin has apparently promised, uh, well, he has no intention of occupying Ukraine. Um, this is just to protect people. Okay. Well, the, the real news of what's going on is uh, not reaching the Russian citizens very effectively. I mean, there's you can't block everything. But when you see um, news reports of citizens on the street, there's in, in Russia, um, you know, the vast majority of them, I don't know if it's a majority, but a lot of them anyway, are consuming this information uh, hook, line, and sinker and uh, are of the belief that Russia is doing something very noble and uh, this whole peacekeeping idea is something that is being bought wholesale by those citizens. Now, naturally, that's something that, that has to happen in, a, in an unjustified, unprovoked war. And, of course, control of information is something that, don't forget, that's part of why our country, as well as other democracy-embracing countries, uh, have freedom of the press in such a way that the government doesn't have control of that information. That's a concept that doesn't exist in Russia. It's never existed in Russia. And it's, it's an effort to make these justifications. So... I want to talk more. I know we we did this in some previous episodes because there's been so much going on, but uh, I want to delve a little further into 
how all of that works as it relates to the, the law of war and the law of armed conflict, which is part of the law of war. And as I've said before, that there is no actual body of law that we would call the law of war. And, and when people are claiming, rightfully so, that a lot of these actions by Russia have, have turned into quote-unquote war crimes, there is obviously a legitimate basis for that because the overall overarching concept that indiscriminate uh, killing of non-combatants is something that can be criminally prosecuted and has been before uh, in the international criminal court. But one of the problems we have with it's just based on the fact that how laws are created and how they're enforced it is uh, normally uh, a governing body let's say it's here in the United States we all know that process the Congress will uh, propose a bill and they'll vote on it and and if the Senate um, has their own version or if they agree with the House version it ends up going up to the president the president signs it or vetoes it and it's this process whereby the representatives of the citizens of our country are the lawmakers and make laws and it's this this process whereby it's you know uh, it's supposed to be transparent that we know what's going on now we all know that there's backdoor dealings we've we've heard about you know how lobbying works and you know there's all this controversy that continues with regard to dark money and other stuff but ultimately the idea the principle anyway is that uh, a law is made and it governs a particular jurisdiction and in the example i just gave well it applies to yes the united states you can't really make a law that says, um, you know, Russian citizens or Russian military can or can't do something. So you have to go back to um, these humanitarian concepts. And the creation of the International Criminal Court was designed to uh, address those matters that are beyond the jurisdiction of any given country. And... There is this theory in the law that if something is so uh, repugnant to basic human rights that it warrants some deterrent action, then uh, there is no real jurisdictional problem there. I mean, there is, but that's the argument, okay? So when we talk about war crimes uh, and how one would determine if something is a war crime, we have to look at the what's been done and whether or not it follows these traditional um, basically components of authorized war, if you want to call it that way, because wars have to be conducted in such a way so that they're specifically between the authorized combatants of any given nation. And as I've said before, that's why military members wear uniforms. That identifies somebody as a member, a combatant member of a nation's regular army. So what that does is that it, you know, number one, yes, it makes you a target, uh, a legitimate target in combat if there are two nations that are at war. That, and that's a different issue, by the way. When is a nation at war versus when it isn't? I just don't mean conceptually. I mean legally. 
because one might very easily conclude based on the facts and circumstances presented that yes ukraine and russia are at war that's just look at the tv right just look at what's going on but in russia uh putin would disagree and say that oh no no this isn't war and there's a very specific reason why he's portraying it that way number one yes of course because of the citizen support that or lack thereof that is going on in russia controlling the narrative is part of that but also a quote-unquote declaration of war kicks in all sorts of other things that 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 happen so meaning that uh if it's not a true declared war uh putin can claim that his military troops although they are shooting at bombing and destroying cities in ukraine aren't actually at war with anybody they're just uh you know enforced you know trying to do a peacekeeping mission which sounds ludicrous but that's why that argument is being post posed because if it were truly a declared war then there would be different dynamics including um you know the the traditional method by which um combatants are identified um so getting into what what would constitute a war crime under those circumstances or really anything where even if it isn't a declared war i mean we're talking about um killing of and destruction of a country's resources for no other purpose than to inflict harm and damage on the civilian population or on the ability of the government the foreign government to do its basic functions like provide shelter food um you know control the economy and things like that because believe it or not wars are not supposed to necessarily do that and that, and that a lot of these changes in how this view occurs uh happened after world war ii and we'll get into that in just a bit right when we come back after these messages so stay tuned welcome back now um as we all know students of history are well aware that a lot of what happened in world war ii when it came to how countries attacked other countries in that process and understanding that things were somewhat less sophisticated as far as the ability to uh, specifically target military targets so let's talk about that first military targets are those that have the obvious things such as planes tanks you know troops bases forts blah 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 all those things that are clearly part of the military infrastructure um the ability to identify those target them specifically and use weapons that will be as precise as technical technologically capable depending on the capability of those weapons is something that is designed to keep you know the armed conflict in uh, the space of that which is within the realm of traditional warfare in world war ii basically um you know all countries involved engaged in violations of that general concept uh the united states certainly uh did carpet bombing of berlin and other parts of germany 
uh, one could very clearly argue that the use of uh, atomic weapons in Japan was indiscriminate. Um, Germany, of course, used buzz bombs and other massive uh, bombing techniques and destructive techniques to terrorize, essentially, the citizens of England. And it was this was a civilian casualty nightmare in what happened in both that war and, you know, other wars that had preceded this process. We get into some sticky territory, though, when, again, trying to determine whether when something is or isn't a war crime, when the capabilities of the that military technology is somewhat limited. So remember back in World War II, how did we determine troop movements? How did we figure out where or if the enemy had um, particular military assets? What you know, were they disguised? Were they not? You know, all these other things. Well, that was normally done through pure reconnaissance flights or intelligence obtained on the ground through um, scouts or agents that were giving that information. So some of this was like word of mouth. Well, there's a munitions factory in on such and such river, um, and it may be combined with a flyover and some photography, but not at all like what we have now. I mean, just look at Google Maps and you can learn a lot more about what's going on in the world than it was ever capable back then. So if I just want to take a little detour here and talk about why the development of nuclear weapons in and of themselves is considered something that's abhorrent to all of these concepts because it is under all, nearly every circumstance that a nuclear weapon could be used uh, and have it be justified as a, a proper method of conducting war. And I know that seems weird to even talk about the proper method of conducting war because war is abhorrent to civilized societies, of course. But these quote-unquote, laws, rules, are designed to prevent atrocities from happening, and if so, they need to be prosecuted in a, in a certain way, ergo uh, the International Criminal Court. So when the, the, when the U.S. had successfully developed and, in fact, deployed nuclear weapons uh, against civilian populations in Japan, and mind you, remember one reason why uh, Hiroshima was targeted was because it was undamaged relatively by any other type of activity that had occurred in that particular part of Japan. So there was no existing damage. Part of utilizing that city as a target was to see what the full effect of this nuclear weapon would be. And mind you, you probably know this already, but those two nuclear devices that were used in World War II, at the end of World War II, uh, pale in comparison, I mean, by a factor of probably thousands, uh, less powerful than what is in the nuclear arsenal of countries that have uh, current nuclear capability. So, you know, put another way, that was a relatively minor uh, nuclear explosion, yet it still 
vaporized, you know, thousands of people on impact and uh, widespread destruction that um, causes great human suffering to innocent civilians. And, well, we did it anyway. In the name of stopping the war, you know, preventing few future casualties, etc. We've heard all those arguments before. But the, the very nature of that type of weapon is that it is indiscriminate. It is designed to kill populations of people, women, children, non-combatants, and to render a population uh, helpless. So there is a philosophy that uh, to the extent that a country is capable of utilizing whatever technology exists, of limiting the targeting of true targets of military value, not just for the demoralization of the country or for uh, efforts to uh, cause suffering. <laughs> Again, sounds crazy that you'd be talking about a war, but you're supposed to do it so that it minimizes suffering. Well, theoretically, yeah. I mean, that's how it's supposed to go. Um, but what what happens in an era now? I just want to shift again a little bit into other types of nuclear weapons. Um, obviously, there's the intercontinental ballistic missile version that we're all familiar with. And if you grew up during the Cold War, we all knew that the U.S. had many, many ICBMs that could reach anywhere in Russia just like the Soviet Union at the time had many, many such weapons that could target pretty much anywhere in the United States as well, which led to this concept of mutually assured destruction, the idea that they would never be used. That's, there's that version of nuclear war. However, the U.S. and Russia and other developed countries have developed what can be referred to as tactical nuclear weapons, which are of a smaller scale and can be used theoretically on the battlefield and in situations where if it were truly a military target and if it could be isolated to an area not so much the widespread destruction but um, again it's supposed to be a deterrent it's supposed to be something that if it's in that military's arsenal then the other side should be wary of the fact that that exists, which is why, by the way, the possession of or existence of nuclear arsenals in countries is usually public knowledge. It's not something that's kept secret because it's the existence of that potential that is supposed to deter conflict. So let's look at this situation. And let me just ask you if this makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, the NATO alliance, which is a, a treaty-based organization. Uh, countries agree to defend one another by legal contract um, in an effort to stop something like this from happening. Okay, That's the basic principle behind what those treaties involve. Uh, one might say, and they, they could be right, that uh, treaties start wars. True. <laughs> Both World War I and World War II were uh, initiated 
due to the existence of cooperative defense treaties in Europe, right? I mean, you know your history. That was what really uh, forced world wars. Now, that being said, in the the modern, quote-unquote, modern era, NATO is designed to be a deterrent for somebody like Vladimir Putin to do exactly what he's doing right now. Because it is not just the forces of, let's say, you know, France or England or any of the NATO countries on their own. It's an amassing of military capability and defensive capability that is uh, theoretically ironclad. And therefore, like I said, a deterrent, a deterrent to military aggression against any such NATO country. All right, we'll talk more when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back. Now, theoretically, in the uh, great sphere of ideas and not reality, uh, NATO uh, is supposed to be an alliance to deter uh, hostile military action by anyone against any NATO country. The reality is that it's basically you know, Russia that we're talking about. That's that's the potential foreign country. Um, it, it's also, of course, supposed to have the benefit of NATO cooperation also encourages uh, those countries to respect the human rights and, where applicable, the democratic principles of its citizens. Could you view it as a way of uh, Western democratic ideals being forced upon other countries, maybe, and there are those that think that. But more importantly, um, it's really sort of a modern diplomatic way of stopping wars from starting. And in that sense, it's a good idea. So as we've talked about on the show, and if you've heard in the news, there has been uh, difficulties with approving Ukraine is a NATO country, and they're not a NATO country right now. Um, and the, the big question is, is Ukraine part of Europe, or is Ukraine part of, you know, Asia, uh, meaning Russia, historically uh, or otherwise? Geographically, that's it's there, it's on the border, so what goes one way, it goes the other. It's right in the middle, right? And Ukraine had been attempting to have itself identified as a European nation with European ideals, uh, non-communist or dictatorial types of governments, but, and it's been correctly pointed out that this is a very young country. Uh, it hasn't been a country for very long. The current form of the country is even, even newer than uh, what had been going on. And was there corruption occurring in Ukraine within the government in the past? Absolutely. Like any fledgling uh, country, there are th- there are troubles and there are people that uh, they have to work things out. Uh, and, you know, that's part of the process of developing how the true democracy would work. I mean, after all, the government that's in place right now with uh, President Zelensky, it, it resulted after what could be termed a coup d'etat because there had been a previous administration that was uh, pro-Russia and the citizens basically revolted and created their own much more democratic government. Now, is Ukraine 
as quote unquote democratic as let's say you know Chicago, Illinois, or Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, no, but there's different uh, characteristics and things that are uh, that that are counted for in different ways. For example, um, it, it's hard to imagine in the United States that martial law would be imposed in such a way that anyone who is seen walking down the street will be shot on sight. Probably not something that we would do, and something that is that is happening in Ukraine. But again, it's an adjustment because of the the nature of the situation they're dealing with. And they're being occupied, or very close to being occupied, by a foreign invading country. So, yes, you know, there are times when you have to suspend people's rights to do what they would otherwise do. And that's where we get into that very dangerous territory. That's exactly what Putin's doing. He's modif He's changing the playbook based upon making the narrative fit what his goal is. And what is that goal? Well, we, you know, you have to look at actions rather than words here, because all the words are not making any sense. Uh, you know, the just, and this is where justifications come in, and this is where things get so slippery when it comes to different nations conducting military operations against one another. So you hear this where, oh yeah, I know we, we did target a hospital and we did kill civilians, but that's because we had intelligence that indicated there were military assets being hidden there. Which, if that were true, that would be a violation of the law of armed conflict. You know, uh, you're supposed to keep military and civilian assets independent and, and not mix them together. If you're the country who is attempting to hide your military assets in such a way that you would obtain protection. Let me give you another example. We're all familiar with the show MASH, right? Great great show from the 70s and I think it went into the 80s and that was a uh, mobile army surgical hospital right you know in the beginning there's this big red cross on top of the tents when the helicopter's flying over and that is derived from um, the law of armed conflict that if a military unit or for that matter, any civilian component of a country identifies um, a particular unit, but in the universal symbol for that is the Red Cross. That means they're claiming protection under the law of war that they are declaring themselves to be non-combatants. Combatants that are serving a non-combatant humanitarian role. So the deliberate targeting of even a military hospital is a violation, as well as, of course, a civilian hospital. Um, because, and, and this is what also requires, if possible, uh, one nation soldiers are required to attempt to uh, take surrendering troops into custody rather than kill them. You know, and all this is really designed to sort of de-escalate things. But all those same rules end up being used as reasons to escalate things. So it, it's not a very workable process, <laughs> not a very, very workable system 
And someone suggested, uh, you know, maybe all these results, these uh, res these things, these conflicts could be resolved by, you know, a game of virtual chess or something like that. So we didn't have to kill people. It's just terrible. But I want to talk a little bit about U.S. policy here and what is going on. And there was a uh, representative... I'm sorry his name is escaping me right now, but he made a really excellent point about why, uh, what's going on with the U.S. refusing to even entertain the concept of a no-fly zone. You know, this in the context of President Zelensky and pretty much everybody in uh, Ukraine begging for some relief from this constant bombardment, which naturally... Uh, would include enforcement of a no-fly zone or regaining defense of the skies over Ukraine, which right now are 100% undefended. And it's true that what is going on is that every day that this continues, unchecked and, and with no balance whatsoever and, and an inability to take action against this people are dying every day i mean a lot of people are dying every day if we don't do something today more people will die today that's just the truth of the matter but this particular representative said okay and, and i agree with him 100 percent. and by the way he's a republican so you know i i'm not saying this politically one way or the other but the argument goes like this that at a certain point, you have to look at what the moral responsibility is to protect innocent human lives. And NATO country or non-NATO country, when things like this are happening, and since we, as Americans, have taken on the, the responsibility, and like it or not, we are a world power, that's why this discussion is even happening, there are certain moral obligations to protect innocent lives and a lot of what has been discussed is the risk of escalation if we say put a you know a single american troop on the ground in ukraine or we fly a single military mission over the skies of ukraine or we you know you saw recently if we even assist poland in providing old MiG-26 planes to Ukraine, well, there's this fear of escalation. Well, here's what makes no sense about that. The fear of escalation is, is a calculated risk. That's what this is all about. And every time there's a fear of escalation and that prevents either NATO countries or the United States with or without NATO from doing something, it just allows vladimir putin to do more of what he's already doing and kill more people we'll be back right after these messages the reluctance of the united states to be involved in european conflict has a, a very long history going back basically <laughs> to the entire existence of our country um and as we've seen in several examples that isolationism or unwillingness to um, work with, you know, before NATO existed, we used to use the term allies. And we still use that term for, for in various different contexts. So 
Um, do we consider Ukraine an ally? Yes, absolutely, we do, um, even though it's not a member of NATO. Um, but that is uh, kind of one of the things that the United States has regretted in in the past, twice, at least twice in the past, uh, probably more, in World War One and World War Two, by having a very isolationist attitude that those things going on over there don't affect us not our problem we don't really want it we want to close our eyes and look the other way well in both of those great uh, terrible world wars that attitude arguably led to the extension of the period of time that the war happened and of course we know that in uh World War II, we were brought into the war by a hostile attack. So let's talk about that. I mean, is the end game here to bring the United States into this conflict? And that may be exactly what Putin wants. And there's a lot of military uh, analysts and scholars that um, when we're talking about showing restraint and what we can do behind the scenes in terms of sanctions, in terms of... Uh, you know, military support, financing, medical equipment, supplies. Well, yes and no, because uh, with the changing narrative that keeps coming from Vladimir Putin, what we're seeing is that he's considering all these different forms of uh, resistance, so to speak, to the Russian agenda to be comparable to acts of war. He's publicly come out and said that the sanctions that are designed to punish Putin and Russia from uh, what they've done, he considers those to be acts of war in and of themselves. Okay, well, so then it's the same thing as if we did have uh, NATO boots on the ground or NATO planes flying overhead. So I want to get back to, to this concept that and it's true, this is sort of walking a razor-thin line or walking the tightrope here because the risk of this escalating into a worldwide conflict is very grave. But it's that very risk that is permitting the Russian aggression to continue day to day to day to day and more and more and more people die. So to say... You know, we, there is no risk-free option that is available to the United States other than what little we can do by, you know, putting putting more boots on the ground in NATO countries. And what this particular representative was talking about is the fact that, you know, of course there's risk involved with any such decision. And to say, oh, well, you know, we don't have a risk-free option, so we're going to do very little or not what seems to be the obvious is really kind of silly when you think about it yeah true if the u.s were to become directly involved yes there would be escalation there would be consequences that would all happen but waiting for it all to go away doesn't seem like a good idea either um and trust me I, i'm the last person that would uh promote any kind of uh, warfare. I've I've been there. I've done that. I I do not like uh, 
the concept of war whatsoever. But what's the end game here? And how is this ever going to be resolved if... And, and is it is it people are like, well, maybe he doesn't have any aims on NATO. If he, if he ever does set foot... In on one inch of NATO soil, that yeah, then then it'll be there'll be hell to pay. Then, all right. Well, it, just like everything else, it'll probably be too late then, and that's exactly what Putin's counting on: is the fact that there will be this indecision. Frankly, it's empowering him more uh, to basically just say, okay, well, yeah, we're not. Keep on bombing things. We don't like it. We're going to put sanctions on you. But, yeah, don't worry. We're not going to actually, you know, fight back ourselves. No, 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 no. We're not going to. Don't worry. Don't worry, Putin. We're not going to do that. So don't get too upset. Keep on bombing and killing people. No no problem. You know, that's that's terrible. And my personal opinion is that much more could be done. Much more should be done. And... What the end game for NATO and the United States needs to be is, you know, I know we don't like to use this term because it has a pejorative uh, connotation, but the hearts and minds concept. You know, if Russian citizens knew fully what was going on, there'd be more than the thousands of protesters that have already been arrested in Russia for speaking their minds about this and if that were something that were actually understood well in a widespread way guess what uh vladimir putin is no longer the president of russia because of a regime change and that's what needs to happen uh, how do we get there well sitting back and saying well okay uh we don't like what you're doing and we're gonna slap you with sanctions and uh, don't do anything else, and then he does something else. It, it's, it, you know, th this is something where I understand it's probably under a variety of circumstances going to be a prolonged um, conflict, not going to be over anytime soon. But I think that the very concept of utilizing that deterrence that's supposed to be there to serve its very purpose is something that would in the end reduce human suffering because we will be able to put an end to this now okay so now we're talking about uh nuclear powers at war with each other and so we go back to the concept where, okay, if one side is just the aggressor that's unmet with any sort of resistance, realistic resistance, and both sides have nuclear weapons, by one country utilizing the fear that another country has to engage militarily with a nuclear power, that's not, that's not mutually assured deterrence anymore. That's basically... Uh, all-out aggression by one country against others, and I say that plural because there are many um, NATO countries that have nuclear weapons. It's obviously not just the United States, and you know that. I mean, there's there are nuclear weapons in the possession of, and you know they're tested all the time. Well, not so much anymore, but um, 
pretty much most of the European countries or people countries in that part of the world have developed nuclear technology. That's no mystery. France has nuclear weapons. The United States does. Israel. Um, there's a number of countries that have. Oh, by the way, India has a very large-scale um, nuclear program, and we can see that they're trying very hard to just stay out of this, which which obviously makes sense from their perspective. But uh, something's going to have to shake loose here, and you know, my personal opinion is that this is becoming very dangerous, and it has just gone too far, and the whole reason why the uh, Western Alliance exists is to prevent this from happening. And, you know, it seems like Putin's calling the rest of the world's bluff is what it seems like. And it needs to stop. It needs to stop now. Something needs to be done. Um, I didn't have time to get into it, but there have been Americans that have been agreeing to go fight for the Ukrainian military. And there's actually a set of laws on this issue that I'll discuss next time. It, I'll give you a preview. It's basically illegal to um, fight for a foreign country as a United States citizen. There are some exceptions to that. And it's a similar law that exists in many countries all over the world, but uh, it's kind of being, quote unquote, waived for the time being, for various reasons. All right, that's all the time we have. So Please tune in next week, as you can, every week right here, every Saturday from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. Have a great weekend.